So Proverbs chapter 12 is where we'll pick it up tonight. Let's uh, let's ask the Father's blessing on this. Hmm? You already have a question, Spencer? No, no. no? okay. I think we're going to have to separate them, yeah, we are. Let's bow. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I thank you uh, ahead of time for what, uh, Lord, what I know is coming, uh, what what many of us, if we've read ahead, know is coming in, in the Proverbs. Uh, Lord, thank you. What a wonderful book. What what a wonderful word. Um, and Lord, I just, page after page, thank you so much that you've given this to us. I thank you for the wisdom in it. I thank you for the, the counsel, Father, for the, uh, Lord, for the, the understanding that you bring to us. And I ask for more tonight, Lord. Um, And we don't ask for anything other than what you want to give us, what you've said over and over, what you've declared you want for your people. And we just ask for that, for more of you, for more of your word, for more heavenly wisdom for this earthly walk until you come. We ask your Holy Spirit uh, to teach us. I know we pray that often, and I don't mean to pray it redundantly, Father. I mean it every time. We truly want to hear from you. And ask that your spirit would move and, and work and teach our hearts in ways that no, uh, no man could. Thank you again for your word. Bless this time, Father. And uh, guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Proverbs. Heavenly wisdom for an earthly walk. And that truly is, is what this book is. It's also what you could call food for the soul. Food for the soul. We're going to talk a little bit about the soul tonight. That theme will come up. And while I said last week and on Sunday that the Proverbs are very idiosyncratic, they tend to stand alone, yet I I keep seeing these broader themes in Scripture. And perhaps it's just me, I don't know. You can can determine for yourselves. But I do know that the issue of the soul will, will come up a few times tonight. Uh, what is the soul? How does that function as opposed to the spirit or, or the body or the flesh? Well, we'll talk about that as we go. Let's start in verse 1, chapter 12. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. He tells it like it is. The person who says, I don't want to be reproved, I don't want rebuke, I don't want you to tell me what to do with my life, is the Bible says, just plain stupid. There's nothing else for it. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 tells us, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because knowledge requires instruction, and instruction requires correction. You know, once we've received instruction, then we kind of head out on our own a a certain distance until we need some course correction again. And that's what the Word of God does. Again and again, the Lord pours His Word out into our hearts, and we go, great, we got it, Lord, we have it. And we head out, and we fall flat on our faces, and He picks us up, and He says, okay, now remember what we talked about. Now let's talk about it again. Now you go one more time, and keep walking, and keep going. Instruction, correction, and that's what the Word of God is for. That's why, by the way, June 10th and 11th, we're going to spend two days with Timothy. Now, I've announced this a couple of times, but for practical reasons, I share it tonight. Two days with Timothy. We will spend a Friday night and a Saturday in 2 Timothy. We're going to go straight through the book. 
Okay, it's just four chapters, six different teachings that we'll spend together in that day and a half. And I strongly encourage you all to be here. If you can, you know, fit that time in on your on your schedules, on the calendars, uh, June 10th and 11th. Why Second Timothy? Well, for one reason, that's what we taught in a two-day retreat seminar, leadership training in the Philippines. But for an even greater reason, Paul's last letter that he wrote to Timothy tells us how to live in these last days. And it's something that as we were going through it in the Philippines, I thought, you know, our fellowship at home, we need this. We need to spend this time together. So it's going to be a Friday and a Saturday. A Friday from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. We'll have times of worship and and discussion groups, and we'll have the teaching. Same thing on Saturday. We'll kick it off the next morning at 9 in the morning. We'll go all day. We'll have lunch together. At 5 o'clock, we'll break for dinner, and you're on your own. Come back at 7 o'clock, and we'll go from 7 to 10 p.m. on Saturday. So it's just we're just going to pack it in a day and a half. And if you enjoy the two or so hours that we spend on Wednesday nights, just think of that over a day and a half. Okay, and just be nonstop together time. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. Now, some might say an entire Friday night and Saturday of what we're doing right now in Bible study and worship, isn't that a little much, Pastor? Now, many of you shake your heads. God bless you. And that's why you're here, because you can't get enough of this. But some will say that. Some have said to me, literally, quote, I'm full up on Bible study. I need something else right now. Oh, no. And others, honestly, just don't want to be told what to do. You know, let me live my life. Don't don't give me all of your pastoral advice and all that biblical stuff. And that's okay. That's their choice. But according to the Bible, that's stupid. It's just stupid. Verse 2. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. A good man gets favor, grace from the Lord, but, of course, he will condemn one who devises evil. And I immediately, I read this verse and my, my heart just went to Noah. To Noah. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7 tells us, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, that's right. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord. Noah was in that place. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6 says, These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. He was righteous, blameless, and walked with God. We look at this, consider it, because in Noah's generation, a good man was hard to find. In fact, he was about the only one, with the exception of perhaps his three sons, who were still under his leadership to a degree in his home. He was one good man out of the entire Planet. Now you might think, yeah, but there weren't that many people on the planet at the time. You know, if you do population studies in the first few chapters of Genesis, what you discover is the planet may have been just as populated then as it is today. Or perhaps more so. This was a planet that was covered with people at the time of the flood. Wickedness was so bad that it got down to eight people who would listen to the Lord out of the entire planet. Well, but Proverbs says a good man will obtain favor. Well, what exactly does a good man look like? Well, he looks like Noah. 
A good man looks like Noah. And we're told three things about Noah if you want more understanding of a good man. Three insights from Genesis 6 verse 9. Number one, Noah was a righteous man. The word righteous in the Hebrew is sadiq. Literally means to be straight. Noah was straight. Now I know that might have a different connotation today. Noah was straight. Although, maybe not. Maybe the connotation of being straight in Noah's day is exactly like it is today. However you see it, Noah was straight. Secondly, Noah was blameless in his time. Blameless. The Hebrew word tamim, blameless, which means complete. Noah was the complete man. He was straight. He was complete. He was whole. Noah's whole spirit, soul, and body, all three aspects of of who he was functioning in harmony with the Lord and functioning in the way he was created to function. He was just a good man, righteous, blameless, but perhaps best of all, we're told simply Noah walked with God. To walk with God means you're just with Him. You're spending time with Him. But here's the thing. Being straight, being whole or complete and walking with God was difficult in the days of Noah. It was a hard thing to do. This was not simple. It's not like, oh yeah, those flannel graph biblical characters, they, it was easy to be righteous back then. Not so, as we see in Noah's time. And the things which marked his days are the very same things which mark our days, the last days, as the Bible describes Days that were increasingly marked by the same ultimate judgment of Noah's day, which is violence. Violence is the only sin that we're told uh, caused the Lord to flood the earth. Now we know there must have been other things going on, but in Genesis, it's violence is highlighted. You knew I couldn't go tonight without mentioning it, but Osama bin Laden was assassinated, as you know, killed, taken out, judged, whatever, uh, just on, what was Monday? Monday? Sunday. Sunday. And I, I want to give you a reaction, okay, just kind of my gut level reaction of it. First of all, I was, I was just shocked, because I didn't know that we would ever catch him, find him, take him out. But I, I sat there and I was glued to the TV. Some of you may have been. And I'm watching this and I'm, I'm listening to every nuance of what's being said in President Obama's speech and, and, and all that was going in on with that. And of course, then the commentators came on and gave their spin on it and talking. But the whole time they were talking, they're showing the crowds as they began to form outside of the White House. Now, I didn't see. I know crowds formed down at Ground Zero. I'm not sure really there in New York City what, what that looked like. But outside the White House, it was, there, were, there were two things that struck me. One, the crowd was very young. Uh, most of them were college students, probably from Georgetown or, or a local university that all made their way over to the White House to jump and cheer and shout, and, hey, it's a reason to party, right? The other thing that struck me was the crowd looked more like they had just won a football game than like we had taken out a terrorist. Yeah. People shouting, USA! USA! Uh, now, understand... I believe, and you can disagree with me on this, but I believe in capital punishment. I believe that there is a biblical basis for it. Um, I believe that Osama bin Laden was an evil man, absolutely a terrorist, and I believe deserved to be judged for it. But as I watched the crowd's reaction, I was stunned at how much of a lighthearted kind of party atmosphere it was. And it bothered me. It really did. And it bothered me that it bothered me. 
but I'm just I'm struggling with this whole issue. And then it was the next day that that someone was uh, was being interviewed, uh, a relative of someone who had died on 9/11, and they and they said this. Perhaps you heard it. It doesn't bring them back. And I thought about you know situations of the past where someone has has been murdered, and the family goes to watch the execution of the murderer, and families. Uh, interviewed after watching the execution saying didn't make me feel any better you know and so what is it that was wrong with that picture well part of it is an attitude in our culture that is different than I think it would have been 30, 40 years ago I think, I think there's a looseness to it there, there's well, let me let the Lord say something. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Wow. Now that's not Pastor Rick's statement. That's the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, I don't think Bin Laden had a, you know, a chance to turn from his ways and live. You know, I guess anybody could, but it, I mean, it was so horrendous, and he was so far down that the path of evil and wickedness. And yet, to hear God say, "I still, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked," God wasn't chanting that night. Now, God very well may have been judging in that moment, allowing, you know, causing, bringing about uh, the the discovery of where he was. But again, all that to say, the only death that should bring any joy or cheers to us is the death of the righteous. That's that's one to chant for. All right. Now that may sound a little weird, but hey, he's home. She's home. Praise God. They're with the Lord. But we live in evil times. We live in dark times. We live in days like Noah's. And the reality is that we are part of something bigger than all of this. Part of something that is eternal and has eternal consequence in the decisions we make. We live in days like Noah. Don't forget that. Remember that. Verse 3 going on, a man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. The root of the righteous. I like that description. Uh, picture a tree whose roots are down and clinging and holding on deep into the earth. Noah was straight. Noah was complete. Noah walked with God. He was rooted in righteousness. How about the people in Noah's day? Jesus said this, Matthew twenty four thirty seven. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand that the flood came until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say the people in Noah's day were were abjectly wicked. They were. But what he describes is a people without, and I use the word he used, understanding. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And then they got it. Then they realized it. That's characteristic of these days. A lack of understanding as to what's really going on in the world. Understanding. So may our understanding be straight, may it be complete, as we walk with the Lord in His grace and in His favor. Now ladies, Solomon has a word just for you. Verse 4. An excellent wife 
is the crown of her husband. It doesn't say she crowns her husband. She's an excellent wife. It's the crown of her husband. But she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Solomon would know about this. He had many wives to look at, you know, and consider. And he talks about this several times in the book. Proverbs 18.22, he says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 31, verse 10, and closing out the book in the teachings of Lemuel's mother, it says, An excellent wife who can find. Her worth is far above jewels. An excellent wife who can find. Now, it would be really funny if you just stopped right there. You know, if that ended the book. An excellent wife who can find. <laughs> Mike and Ike were out golfing together. And, and uh, long about the eighth hole, Mike said... You know, Ike, I'm, I'm thinking about divorcing my wife. And Ike said, well, what's, what's going on? He said, well, you know, she hasn't even talked to me in six weeks. And Ike says, you know, you might want to rethink this whole thing. A wife like that is hard to find. <laughs> wife like that hasn't talked to me in six Okay, let's just continue right on. Now, now let me ask this question. Ladies, you, you, we read something like an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And, and often as Solomon refers to women in the book of Proverbs, he, it's in the context of being a wife, being a good wife. Peter talks about how to be a good wife in 1 Peter 3. We see a lot of this in Scripture. And, and it, you, you might ask the question, why is the woman so often seen in the context of her husband? And isn't that a little subservient here? And my response, my answer to that is, of course it is. Of course it's subservient. What an amazing blessing women have above even men in that opportunity. Please hear me. Jesus was subservient. Jesus said, it is not to be this way among you, that is the way the Gentiles lorded over each other, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Ladies, in your marriages, have an opportunity to be just like Jesus. Now, men, you do too. To love your wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians chapter 5. To serve your wives. To be in subjection one to another. We're all called to this. But in the very role of the helpmate, of the wife walking alongside the husband, ladies, you have opportunity to be just as Jesus is to us. And that is to serve, to love your husbands. Paul said, Philippians 2 uh, verse 5, "...have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus." who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, and we need to understand that we have a God who placed the highest value on subservience. Verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Now, this is interesting to me. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Who do you look for in good counseling? 
What do you look for in counsel? Do you look for credentials or do you look for Christ-likeness? Do you look for a lot of letters after a name, lots of schooling, degrees hanging on the wall, credentials? Or do you look for Christ-likeness? I'll tell you, I've, I've learned, and the older I get, the more I think, if I need good godly advice, I would rather go to a very, very simple, uneducated, godly man than the most educated man on the planet. I would so much rather speak to someone who knows Jesus. 24 years ago, some of you know, I did my postgraduate study in clinical psychology. (laughs) And uh, that was a long time ago, so I don't remember much of it. But I remember this. It was a turning point for my life. Because I was thrust into the world of secular psychology, of, of, of training, of teaching. I was surrounded by highly intelligent, educated, erudite people professors, students, clinicians, counselors. I spent all my time with these people for two solid years of my life. And you know what I saw and heard most? Depravity. I don't know that I would have termed it that at the time, but I saw something didn't work. For all the education and all the intelligence, some of the conclusions that people came to, it was just plain depraved. There was, a, there was a wrongness to it. I, I ran across this verse and I went back 24 years. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. And you can pay big money for a highly credentialed person and get the absolute wrong direction. Or you can talk to a friend, a brother, a sister in Christ and continue walking on the path of righteousness. If you want counsel, seek a godly man. Seek a righteous woman. Pray with the follower of Jesus Christ and the counsel will be sweet and right. Verse 6. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. This is interesting. It's not that the wicked lie in wait for blood. We've seen that before in Proverbs. Now it's the words of the wicked lie in wait. Well, what's that mean? Well, back to the state of the world we're in. Solomon is talking about words that kill. He's talking about language that's just waiting to strike, to entrap, to ensnare, you know, to undermine opponents. He's talking about the blood sport of things like politics. And we're about to re-enter one of those seasons again. You know, with the Republican debate, I guess, is this Friday night. And so the debates are going to start and the undermining and the looking for every possible way to, to ensnare someone and what they said before versus what they say now. And, and you know what? The wickedness in your pastor loves it. <laughs> I really do. Now, I know none of you are this way, but when someone is caught, an opponent politically, someone on the other side of the aisle is caught saying something, doing something, and it undermines their position, don't you just go... <laughs> <laughs> Loser. You know? The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. Remember what we talked about on Sunday? Love covers. Love, well, 1 Corinthians 13.5 does not take into account a wrong. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. Let me just encourage you as we do enter another political season. Lord willing, he'll come before it's all said and done. But if he doesn't, if he tarries and we go through this whole next election cycle and process, let me encourage you to be prayerful and biblical in your voting decisions, as always. But also, just to be careful that you're not 
enjoying the media as it lies in wait for blood. Just keep an eye out for that. Verse 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. And again, I think of the wise man who built his house on the rock. These words of mine, Jesus says, are like a rock on which you build your house. A man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. Now, wait a minute. What? Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. That one was a difficult one for translators to translate. And so you'll see different uh, attempts to explain or to to translate what is said there in verse 9. But I think we can probably put it this way or at least get this general idea from it. Better a less prestigious opinion with bread on the table or, or a less prestigious position with bread on the table than holding out for a respectable position and starving. Okay, better to be in a place... Well, let me ask, is there any work that's beneath you? Shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. But is there? You know, if push comes to shove and, and things tank and, and suddenly you're, you're standing out there going, I, I've got to get some kind of a, a job, will you hold out for the more prestigious position? Or will you just take whatever work you need to take? Like, would you make pizza? I want to uh, just for a moment boast on on the D'Angelos. Now, Jeff and Penelope D'Angelo come to the bridge, started the bridge with us, good friends of mine. But I'll tell you what really impresses me about them. They own Papa Murphy's uh, Pizza in Anacortes. And Jeff is there, you know, five, six days a week making pizza. He's just a little younger than I am. And he's out there making pizza every day. He's got teenagers working for him. Now, I... I delivered pizza when I was in college. I don't want to go back. right? <laughs> but he's in there with the teenagers and with his employees, and he's making pizza. You know, Jeff has employees, and he's, he's covering it. And he's been telling me, you know, boy, in this economy, yeah, it's tough. But he said, you know, I've got, I've got food on the table. I've got employees who work with me and, and are there. And, and I just look at that, and I think there's no shame in that, but I'll tell you something even greater. You know what they do every Tuesday night at their house? They're showing the truth project to their employees. Because Pop Murphy's Pizza is not a business, gang. It's a ministry. <laughs> Jeff resigned as a shepherd of this church because he needed more time for ministry, and I applaud that. And that, I believe, is exactly what Solomon is saying uh, in verse 9. Blessed is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant. Someone might see Jeff uh, putting pizza together for someone and go, he's just a pizza maker. You know, I work for Microsoft. Better is he who is lightly esteemed. Has some workers around him. He's in a good position. God has him there. Then he who honors himself and lacks bread. Verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Now that's interesting to me. Righteousness is revealed in how we treat animals. In our treatment of the animal kingdom. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Aren't two sparrows sold for a cent, Jesus said? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear... You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, Jesus is talking about the Father's intimate care for us in that passage. And yet, don't miss what He said. 
God is also intimately aware of even tiny birds in our world. God is aware of the entire animal kingdom. His creation, God knows what's going on when a sparrow falls. He's aware of that. And righteousness, according to God's word, righteousness is displayed in the gentle treatment of all creatures, great and small. Caring for the little creatures around us. Now, some might say, Rick, you're starting to sound like one of those PETA guys. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, I love PETA. I really do, especially when it's stuffed with meat and cheese and sauce. (laughs) My favorite pita bread. Verse 11, let's just roll on. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, pita or otherwise, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. The wicked man desires the booty or the treasure of evil men. Or the net, literally, of evil men. You might note that. He desires the net of evil men. What does that mean? It means the wicked desires to take what someone else has caught or worked for, as opposed to what he works for himself. But the root of the righteous yields fruit. I love that. The root of the righteous yields fruit. That means the righteous are fruitful in and of themselves. You know, fruitfulness just comes out of the righteous person. The fruit of their roots, their gifts produce. The gifts of the righteous produce. Romans chapter 7 verse 4 tells us, You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to one another, to him who raised, who was raised from the dead, in order, in order that we might bear fruit for God. See, he makes us righteous, not so that we can walk around saying, I'm righteous. He makes us righteous so that we can now be fruit bearers. So now there's a produce, a produce of righteousness within us. Colossians 1.9, Paul says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, so that you can walk around with a big head and say, Look how much Bible I know. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, once we come into our righteousness, blood-bought by Jesus, we now are fruit bearers. And if there's no fruit being born out of our lives, what are you talking about fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There's nine fruits right there of the Spirit. The fruit of righteousness, if it's not coming out in our lives, we've missed something along the way because that is part of the process of becoming righteous. Now, in verse 13 and all the way through chapter 13, the rest of our time hinges on two specific things. Two things. Words and deeds. Words and deeds. Verse 13. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. Verse 14, a man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. Good words and good works are always satisfying. Your words can either produce tasty fruit and your deeds good things, or you can open your mouth and get into trouble. (laughs) Now follow this through, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool's anger 
is known at once. Why? Well, because he's exploding, thoughtless, just just goes off. But a prudent man conceals dishonor. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I like that. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. In verse 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Now I encourage you to go back through those. As I've said before, with each of the Proverbs, take time to meditate on each one. In here, sometimes we're going to take a bunch and just move through them. But especially note, in these verses, the fruit of a mouth that speaks good and truth, the fruit of a mouth that does that, verse 17, brings healing. There's a sign of good fruit coming out of a good mouth. The fruit that comes from a mouth speaking truth and goodness establishes eternal things, as in verse 19. Truthful lips will be established forever. Truthful lips will counsel peace, verse 20. So they're, they're about bringing peace, and, and that peace, that counsel of peace is to their own joy. So truthful, fruitful people are joyful people. Verse 22 tells us they delight the Lord. I really like that verse because if you want to do something that you know is going to make your father delighted, speak truth. Choose good words. Bear good fruit. And verse 23 indicates that these are not boastful people spewing their wisdom to show how much they know. No, a prudent man conceals knowledge. Doesn't mean he's holding it back. Doesn't mean he won't share if if it's necessary. But a prudent man isn't sharing knowledge just so he can be seen as knowledgeable. But the heart of fools proclaims folly. Because the fool wants to impress. And in trying to impress, really reveals how foolish he truly is. Now skip verse 24 and go to verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down but a good word makes it glad. And you all have experienced that, haven't you? You're anxious, you're stressed, you're worried, and a friend, a spouse, someone says, you know what, it's going to be okay. And suddenly there's just this weight lifted. The problem hasn't gone away. The issue is still there, but a good word from a faithful friend has just lifted the stress of it. Verse 26, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Verse 25, gang, is the standard for the tongue of the disciple. Listen to it again. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. That's what a disciple is all about. That's what we're called to. To make glad, to lift hearts, to relieve burdens, to cover with love. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. It seems simple and yet just a word of encouragement is huge in the kingdom of God. In Acts 15, 
But it's a cool little story of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And they've had their debate now about whether or not the Gentiles can receive the gospel. Remember that story? They're, they're shocked. You know, these Jewish Christians, Christianity just grew right out of Judaism. And so they, what, Gentiles, they're, oh, okay, they're supposed to be part of this? So they have this debate, they work it through, they pray about it, and they come to the end of it, and they realize the gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews. So they dispatch a couple of guys, Judas and Silas, back to Antioch to share this good news with the Gentiles. Listen to what happens. Acts 15, verse 31. They come out with the letter, Judas and Silas. They read this letter. Not Judas Iscariot. He's dead and gone. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now listen to this. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. (laughs) Just thought you might want to hear that. They encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. They just stayed there. They loved on them. They gave good words. And what did the good words do? Relieved them of anxiety. Lifted the concern. Well, we love Jesus too, but... They're debating, what if they come back? What if they tell us that we can't be Christians? What if they say, and they're relieved. And they're joyful. And they hang on every word. I think perhaps part of the problem in the church today for for long Bible teaching is we've forgotten how wonderful this word is. And the ability to hang on every word and just to hear it again and again and to praise God for it. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. That's the basis of prophecy. That's why we do it. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification according to need, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Again, words that bear fruit. Words that do good things. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Paul says, Encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. We urge you, brethren, in verse 14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, and there are no exceptions. When he says be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone, except the guy that really grates on your nerves. You know, he, you can talk about him being his back. As far as I can tell, There are two things to constantly be on the tongue of a disciple. Just two things. Good words and the good news. That's our calling. To encourage, to exhort, to comfort with good words, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as we're told in Revelation 22.17, the Spirit and the Bride say come. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Now, go back and look at verse 24. We just kind of skipped over it. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Down in verse 27, a lazy man does not roast his prey, which is kind of funny because what it says, the indication there is a guy who goes out hunting brings the prey home, but then he just doesn't ever clean it to eat it. Because, you know, I did all my work and I'm a little exhausted now. doesn't make sense. But the precious possession of a man is diligence. In the way of the right, of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Chapter 12 closes out with another nod to the work ethic of the wise, to those who would roll up their sleeves, be diligent, be faithful, and do the work to which we are called. But note this in verse 24. He says, and I believe there may be something of the prophetic here, 
The hand of the diligent will rule. The hand of the diligent will rule. Now, physically speaking, Solomon's saying those who work hard can can rise up to a place of some substance, you know, some authority. But in the spiritual sense and in the eternal sense, the diligent will rule. Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the talents? Matthew 25, 21, You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. And based on that teaching of Jesus, and actually many other passages of Scripture, our role in the government of Jesus as He comes will be directly affected by our diligence in word and deed now. Your role in His government. Now, hey, we're all going to be there. If you're in Jesus, you're going to be there. But the Bible does not say they're all going to be completely equal roles. The Bible says based on what you do. That's where our words and our deeds have an impact. Not to our salvation, because we're saved by grace. But to our role in the kingdom. And the diligent will rule. Saw that bumper sticker years ago that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. You know, that's not it. It should be Jesus is coming. Be diligent. Be diligent. Again, we'll all be there, and that'll be wonderful and awesome that we're all there. But Scripture teaches our positions are being determined even now by our diligence. And the Bible says, Colossians three seventeen, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Now, Proverbs 13 begins, in a sense, with Jesus. Look at verse 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A wise son. Jesus is the wisest son ever to have lived. The Son of God was pure wisdom in and of Himself. He perfectly modeled acceptance of the Father's instruction. Now understand, yes, Jesus is God. Jesus was God in the flesh, but He was also the Son of Man. And so he modeled for us, he showed us what is it like to be in a relationship to God as a human being. Again, he was God, but he was also man, and so he shows us this. And Jesus said in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amazing. John 8.28, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. John 10.37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Jesus, the wise Son. The perfectly wise Son. He's the picture. He's the one for all of us. And as Jesus was like Father... So we want to be like son, like father, like son. Read on verse 2. From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. That's literally he eats good. But the desire of the treacherous is violence. Literally the fruit of a man's mouth, he eats. One way or another, you're going to eat your words. So they might as well be tasty. You're going to eat your words. They're going to come back to you. If they're good words, then you can feast on them. If they're bad words, they're going to make you sick to your stomach. And actually, the indication here, the desire of the treacherous is violence. The indication is internal violence. 
If you're spewing evil words, it's going to eat you up inside. It's going to mess you up. The one, verse 3, who guards his mouth preserves his life. (laughs) I try to tell that to my children, but they're not listening. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Parents, have you ever just said to a son or a daughter, don't speak another word because it's just going to make it worse for you. Just don't say it. Just stop. Just stop talking. My daughter Hannah learned that. God bless her and I'm so proud of her. But as a little girl, it was her mouth that got her in trouble. She just couldn't stop talking. And she would be busted and she'd be looking at a week of, of restriction and she and I'd say one more word and I'm adding another week. Boom, another week. You know, she just couldn't. I got words coming out, you know. The one who guards his mouth <laughs> preserves his life. Verse 4 says, the soul, now here we get to it, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. And I love that. That's just a, what a great verse. In fact, this is one to put to memory, gang. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. The word fat is dashain. Dashain in the Hebrew, which means thriving, healthy. You know, a good kind of, of, of fatness. Listen, it's good to be diligent about physical exercise leading to a leaner body. However, it's absolutely biblical to diligently pursue a fat soul. God is inviting us to be people with fat souls. What are you talking about, Rick? The soul. We've talked about this, but understand that the soul is the middle ground of who we are. Okay? We are, like God, we are created in His image. We are each, in and of ourselves, we are a trinity. We have spirit, we have soul, we have body. The scriptures are very clear about, clear about this. The soul is the middle ground. The soul is that which was created when God breathed His spirit into the flesh. The soul was created. And the soul is kind of that essence of, of who we are. And we're either going to be controlled by the spirit... The soul is, or we're going to be controlled by the body. The soul is in the middle. Where are you getting this? 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved complete. See, it's God's intention that spirit controls and breathes life into soul, which in turn controls the actions of the body. Which I believe is why Paul says in this direction, he says, spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great book out there by a man named Watchman Nee called The Spiritual Man. And in it he goes through and he talks about this and it's very biblically based. And he says this, this is a short quote from there, the spirit will be the ruling power in our resurrection state. For the Bible tells us that it is sown a physical body, but it's raised a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15.44 Yet here is a vital point. We who have been joined to the resurrected Lord can even now have our spirit rule over the whole being. Isn't that great news? In our resurrected state, we will be spiritual beings. We will be raised up 
uh, uh, physical resurrection, actual physical resurrection, body, soul, and spirit. But in that resurrected state, the spirit rules. And so we will be perfect, even as Jesus is perfect. And that's wonderful news. But what Nee says here is that we can now begin to walk this way because we have been connected to the resurrected Jesus. So we can begin to walk in our resurrected state. We can have our spirit rule, rule over the whole being, and that's the fat soul. Okay, that's the soul that is filled up with good things and healthy and thriving. Dashain, again, is that word. We get that kind of a soul by feeding on the Word and by the diligent exercise of good words and deeds. And that's kind of the picture that, that I have for this whole thing for chapter 12 and 13 is, boy, why are we going through these Proverbs one after another? Why are we taking the time here? Because we want the soul to be strengthened by the Spirit to then have control over the body, our behavior, our actions, the things that we do. Did I lose you or are you still with me in there? Okay, good, good. Because I'm getting a few of these. <laughs> the thriving, healthy soul. Verse 5, read on. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. Ooh, there's a picture for you. You're not getting away with anything. Your own wickedness is undermining you as you go. Your own sin, the Bible tells us, will find you out. It's not the Lord sitting there going, Ah! Oh, you did wrong. Oh, sinner. Oh, got you again. No, it's our sin that finds us out. It's our sin that convicts us. It's our sin that undermines. That's what he's talking about. Wickedness subverts the sinner. Verse 7, There is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. Now, this is a great verse. What does he mean? The key word is pretends. Pretends. Verse 7 is about pretentious people. In two ways. The pretense of the wealthy. That is, the person who wants to appear wealthy, and yet is probably so leveraged and in debt, the reality is they're very poor. They look wealthy, but it's all a lie, and that's the pretense of wealth. But there's also, there's also the pretense of poverty. And we would do well to pay attention to this one. The pretense of poverty, or pretending to be poor but having great wealth, gang, that's denying the gracious provision of God. That's saying, uh, my financial state is just terrible. This is just, you know, my finances are not where I need them to be in. You know, I'm really poor. I'm just, I'm barely making ends meet. When in reality, fellow Americans, we are rich in the blessings of the Lord. It's those who deny those very blessings that God is pouring out day in and day out, constantly blessing us and enriching our lives and truly making us wealthy, though, though we would say, ah, but I'm, you know, when we have those conversations, when we struggle about money, don't ever forget that God is blessing you. You know, Paul says, if we have something to eat and something to wear, with these we should be content. Jesus says, if, he, if the Lord so clothes the lilies of the field, which are more beautiful than the array of Solomon himself, you don't think He's going to take care of you? How much more will He provide for you? And so it's this whole idea of 
missing the blessing. And don't ever forget this great reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Verse 8, The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. Solomon was the richest man ever to have lived, so he understands something here. What he's saying is, you know, no one goes after the poor. No one drags the poor into court in a lawsuit to try and get something out of them, because you know what? They're not going to get anything. And they realize that. But wealth is like a ransom held over the head of the rich. Solomon says that the more you have, the more of a pain it really is. The more of a hassle it is. And money can begin to own you, though you might think, oh, I want to own things. Well, then your stuff begins to owe you, or own you. And I've told you before in here, I love the phrase stocks and bonds because that's pretty accurate. You know? I'm into stocks and bonds. Yeah, I can tell. You know, it's got your, your feet and your hands are in the stocks and you're in bondage to the finances and you're all tied up in these things. Hey, you're ransoming your own life. But whether rich or poor, it, you know, it's not the image that counts. Charles Bridges, in his Proverbs commentary, a great commentary, wrote, In all cases, riches are more accurately judged by their use than by their possession. So the truly wealthy man, the truly wealthy woman, is wealthy in how they give what they've been given. In how they use the money that they have made or or been given by the Lord. That's wealthy. That's riches. Jesus says in Matthew 16.26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 9 going on, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. That's a great verse too. These are all great verses. There is a brightness about the righteous. Righteous people just seem to have a light about them. Why? Because their light doesn't originate from themselves. The light of the righteous is coming from a different place. Now there's a darkness to the wicked for the exact same reason. And notice this, the light of the righteous, but the lamp of the wicked. A lamp does not produce light. You can go buy the nicest lamp in a very expensive lamp store and bring it home and set it on a table and it does nothing unless it has some kind of energy generated into it. Well, the wicked have the lamp, but they got no light. They've just got darkness. The righteous don't have a lamp. The righteous have light. You don't need a lamp. Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the one who brings this light. The wicked have a lamp. The righteous, we have the oil of the Spirit that keeps the lamp, that keeps the light burning and and shining. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You know, if you've ever gone into a bathroom and and, and you, you put a candle in front of a mirror and it shines back in your face. That's the idea, that we shine the light that is being shined into us by the Spirit of God. As He's altering us and changing us by His light. The brightness of the believer in Jesus Christ is His Spirit. 
And it spreads into our spirit. And it spreads then on into our soul. And it spreads on out into our very bodies. His life just, his light takes over. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light, note that, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, subservient you might say, for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's what Solomon is meaning in verse 9. The light of the righteous rejoices. Verse 10. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Insolence, the word insolence there is Zadon in the Hebrew and it's more accurately translated pride. Pride. King James Version translates it, Proverbs 13, verse 9, only by pride cometh contention. So, the practical question is, are you in a contentious situation with someone? If you are, there's one reason. Pride. If I'm in a contentious relationship, there's only one reason for it, and it's it's my pride. Verse 11. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases. And that's just talking about honest, good work. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Oh, I want to come back to that Sunday, so you might hang your hats on that for the next few days. Verse 13, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. That's worth underlining. One who despises the word will be in debt to it. But the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The one who despises the word, the Torah, God's word, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. How does that work? Jesus says in John 12, 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. If you, if I, if we refuse the word of God, we will be indebted to it. We'll be indebted to it. But receive the word, and it's an entirely different story. Receive the word of God and you are free rather than being in debt. Jesus says in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard, or literally the way of the transgression is hard. Younger people especially, pay attention to that. The way of the transgressor is hard. What does that mean? Sin is hard business. If you choose to sin in your life, it's hard. You're choosing the harder way. Doesn't mean that life in Christ is easy, but it is always blessed. In fact, it was at, at the table today in our, in our staff meeting. I looked around at the staff and I just said, you know what? I still don't understand how people go through this life without Jesus. I, how, would you, how would you deal? If we just took 10, 15 minutes in here right now and each one of us shared one bad thing that we've had to deal with in the last month, that alone, I think, would submerge us if we didn't have Jesus 
to bring the joy out in us, to shine His light into us. If we really sat down and started to look at it and bemoan all the bad stuff that goes on, man, the way of the tra- treacherous or the transgressor is hard. It is a tough way. It is a way without understanding. It's sorrowful. It's painful. And it always lands in those places where ultimately you're just saying, I have no hope. In fact, you're back in verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Every prudent man, verse 16, acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Verse 17. And some of these are so self-explanatory. Now again, you can go back and really think these through, but some of them, they come out and go, yeah, yeah, that's truth. And by the way, some of these will make more sense to you if you're walking in Jesus than they would if you were not. There are people who would try to read the book of Proverbs outside of a relationship with Christ, and they go, I don't get that at all. Well, you have an illumination that simply comes because you know Jesus. Verse 17, A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Interesting, a wicked messenger falls into adversity. Osama bin Laden was discovered by a courier. They discovered the name of one of his couriers, one of his wicked messengers was discovered, and that's how they got bin Laden. That's what it says in the proverb. A wicked messenger falls into adversity. But a faithful envoy brings healing. Who is the faithful envoy? Let me give you another word for it. Ambassador. Let me give you an even better word for it. Evangelist. A faithful envoy. One who brings the gospel. Faithfully delivering the message that Jesus Christ, our authority, has given us to deliver. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us to you. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But the wicked messenger, what does he do? He doesn't deliver the message. Or he changes the message. Or he alters the message. It's not so much what the wicked messenger does as much as what he doesn't do. He does not deliver the message. Another tough question. Do your co-workers know that you're a Christian? Do the people that you see every day, your neighbors, do they know that you believe in Jesus Christ? Have they heard the ambassadorial message from your lips that you are a follower of Jesus? Students, would your classmates know that you're a Christian? That you follow Jesus? Or would they be surprised? Really? You're, you go to church? Well, I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus says in John 20, verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I send you. We are sent ones. We are ambassadors. Verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, or literally instruction, But he who regards reproof will be honored. Desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. Desire realized is sweet to the soul. Soul food. Soul food that makes the soul fat, as we talked about. Thriving and healthy, which is what we want. David said in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness, 
when I awake. John said in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Gang, that is our desire realized. When Solomon says desire realized is sweet to the soul, the ultimate desire that you have, that I have in Jesus Christ, is to see Him and to be like Him. And in that moment when it happens, there will be nothing more sweet to the soul. Desire realized. Okay, listen, we are in process. And we will be in process until that day when we literally awake. Our complete and total satisfaction will not come until Jesus comes. Now, I've been in debate with someone about this. Someone pointing out and saying that I want the full blessing now. I want to experience everything possible that I can experience in Jesus Christ now. I love the sound of that, but the truth is I will not experience everything that I am supposed to experience in Jesus Christ until He comes. Which is part of the reason why I'm still chugging toward home. Why I want to be there. Why I want to be in His Word. Why I want to worship. Why I want to be around other believers. Because that's where I'm headed. And there is not going to be a heaven on earth until Jesus brings it. And so we pursue with all that we are, we fight the good fight. We run the race. We go after Jesus with everything that we are. And then Paul says, I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. The full day. Remember that we talked about a few weeks back? The full day in the Lord. The everlasting, the eternal day, the day of Christ Jesus is the day of the full and complete realization of our deepest desire. Our desire realized will be on that day. So keep walking. Keep walking. He's coming. Verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Who do you walk with? Who do you hang out with? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Now, hey, we are sent. We are ambassadors. We are told to go. But those people that I share my most intimate thoughts with, my most uh, personal nature with, are going to be those who can help me in my walk with Jesus. In my walk with the Lord. Who do you walk with? I'm not just talking about friends and family here. Who do you spend time with? Media. Radio, television, computers, magazines, books. Who are you walking with? Because we become like those who we listen to. And it's amazing. You know, I mentioned a little while ago about getting excited when a political opponent gets undermined. And I'll tell you what drives that in me is watching it on the news. Watching a favorite commentator go off. And I just I get stirred up. And you know what it is? It's wickedness. And it's the flesh trying to grab control of the soul instead of the soul listening to the Spirit and saying, that guy's a person too. He's a man just like I am. You know? He's fallible. He's flawed. He's sinful. Just like me. Who do you listen to? Who do you hang with? Who do you walk with? He who walks with wise men will be wise. So spend your time with wise people. Listen to wise things. Like, like those men who hung out with David. 
Remember the story, and I love it. It's one of my favorite in all Scripture. 1 Samuel 22, verse 2 tells us, David went, he fled from Saul, he hid out in the caves, and it tells us everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And you know what began to happen? It's fun to watch this, to, to travel it through with David and these men. Because there are several examples of these guys with David, and they want to do something. And David says, you know, that's not the right thing to do. That's not the godly thing to do. That's not what the Lord would have us do. And they listen. And these men, these distressed, discontented, indebted men, after a while, become like David. And they become his mighty men. These same dispirited people become the mighty men of David, and they begin to act like and think like and walk like David. Why? Because he who walks with the wise, will be wise. If we will do the same thing as David's mighty men, if we will walk with the son of David, in his wisdom we will become more like him until we are satisfied with his likeness, as David said, when we awake. Verse 21, Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. You need to note this, the word... The phrase, rewarded with prosperity there in the Hebrew is, it's not the best translation, the word is recompensed. Okay? It's not prosperity gospel. It's not, the righteous will be rich. The righteous will get good stuff all the time and will always have, you know, prosperity. No, the righteous will be recompensed for their righteousness. It's not for nothing. And you will receive blessing upon blessing from the Lord, but it may not look like what the world thinks in terms of prosperity. But you will be blessed. You will be recompensed. You will be paid back by the Lord. And I think in a greater sum than what you put out. Verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So ultimately, it's, it's going to end up with the righteous. But, note this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, literally to his son's sons, to his posterity, to his grandkids. Now this verse, among others, is often used in Christian financial seminars to support investing, saving for your children, and you can certainly apply it that way. I'm not you know, saying that's not a good application, but there's a far greater prosperity that I want to leave to my posterity. Mm-hmm. I don't just want to have money in the bank for them. Cash in the bank, I would far rather have Christ in the heart. And, and that's, we need to understand, we've got to keep coming back to the Scriptures and not looking at, from the, at it from the flesh perspective, but from the Spirit perspective. Is it money that we need to store up and pass along to our kids? Is that the most important thing? And you know, generations of fathers who have worked their fingers to the bone to have cash in the bank for their kids but have no relationship with their children and never taught them about Jesus Christ, that's, that's a tragedy. Yes. You leave your kids all the money in the world, that's not going to get them into heaven. But Christ in the heart, that, that's a prosperity to leave to your kids because that they will leave then to their kids as well. We're talking about what we've been talking about, desire realized. Salvation in Jesus. Waking up in His likeness, or better yet, (laughs) caught up in His likeness. Verse 23. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. 
I read somewhere, and don't quote me on this because I know it's not exact, but it's, it's close. I read that there was enough food in India to feed the population there at least three times over. And yet it is completely impoverished. Why? Corruption. Injustice. This is an aspect of poverty in the world. It's part of what they call the wheel of poverty. There are so many different spokes in this wheel. And that's what makes poverty such a complex problem. But one of the biggest problems of poverty in our world, and even in our country, is injustice. It's unfairness. And that, that's exactly what he's saying. There's abundant food there in the fallow ground, the broken up ground. It's ready to grow and bring forth a, a, a harvest for the poor. But they're not going to get it because of injustice. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Psalm 82, verse 3. Isaiah 58, verse 6, for believers, Jesus says, or the Lord says, is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Verse 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The word diligently there, consistently. Consistent, diligent uh, discipline over time. Now, corporal punishment. Spanking. The rod for the child. Proverbs 19.18, Proverbs 22.15, Proverbs 23.13 and 14, and Proverbs 29.15. verse 15. And I can give those to you later if you want them. All speak of the same thing. They all tell the parent, if you withhold spanking... If you withhold corporal punishment from your children, you do them a disservice. I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm talking about young children. And the value, the biblical value of spanking. And you know, this is not some arcane method for raising children. It's the Word of God. And so we got to face and deal with this. I, I love this quote. A child is like a canoe. He steered best when paddled from behind. <laughs> you know, I know spankings are not politically correct, but they're biblical. When administered correctly, we're not talking about mean or hurtful or abusive attitudes or behavior on the part of parents. We're talking about intentional, measured, consistent discipline that produces a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Because remember, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, oh Lord, you will not despise. Some kids take a little more spanking to get to the brokenness. <laughs> Others, it's very simple. In fact, in my family, and I won't say who, but I have, I have a child who all I have to do is look crossways at this particular child, and there is brokenness. I have had other child children. Of course, I just said I have had, so it's either Corey or Hannah. But I've, I've had other kids who, in their upbringing, they needed a little more of the, you know, a little more of the application of this verse to get to that point where there is brokenness. But gang, it is biblical. There is an appropriate place for it. Discipline. Well, discipline takes discipline. By the way, when political correctness overtakes biblical truth. Society is set squarely on a downward path. And I think that's where we are today. Again, days like the days of Noah. And I wonder how politically correct things were back in those days. Verse 25, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, 
but the stomach of the wicked is in need. And I want a soul that's fat. I do. There's no other way to say it. I want a soul that is fed fully on the Word of God, led completely by the Spirit of God, and satisfied when I awake. Amen? Amen. Father, this is what we pray for. We ask for souls that are thriving and healthy because they are fed by, Lord, the Spirit, which is fed by Your Spirit. We want to be full up on You and constantly filling up with You and exercising then the fruit of good words and good deeds coming right out of our lives. We want, Father, to be reflecting the light of Your glory. And all these things, Father, what a beautiful contrast we see, a clear picture of the soul that is captured by the Spirit of Christ versus the soul that is captured by the flesh of man. Oh, Father, may we be Christ-like in all our behavior, in all our words, and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.